Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Manxiety Podcast. We're your hosts, Ashad and Matt. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe so you can get notified of new episodes. If you want to share this with your friends, you can find us on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This week, we have a special guest on our show. Um, as Matt and I have spoken in uh, in detail about being in a fraternity and you know going back and uh, you know being graduates now, while we were undergrads, we had the opportunity to meet a graduate at the time. Uh, his name is Matthew, and um, you know, thank you for joining us on the podcast, Matthew. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, Matthew, uh, obviously, you know what the podcast is about. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, very important to share uh, all of our, you know, journeys through anxiety and sort of different types of anxiety. And that's that's what me and Matt have been doing for a better part of the year. Uh, but it's always good to have someone new who can bring their own experiences to the show. Uh, and uh, I think it's very valuable to our listeners. Um, so, you know, if you want to uh, kick it off with whatever, uh, you know, I guess your journey and tell us <laughs> tell us about you. Absolutely. I love to talk about my journey and talk about myself in general. Uh, so to talk a little bit about what I did after I graduated and uh, I after I graduated from UC Irvine, I then went back to the Central Valley where I'm originally from and I ended up working in marketing and public relations for a short while. But I always knew I wanted to go back to school, um, one, because I felt like there's so much more I still wanted to learn, and also because I was interested in teaching at the community college level. And to do that, you needed a master's degree. So I started applying for master's programs and communication studies specifically because while I was an undergrad at Irvine, I double majored, but quickly realized I should have just stuck with sort of the umbrella major, which was communication because my undergrad was in journalism and film media. So I decided I wanted to go into communication studies and I entered into CSU Northridge's program. And when I was in this program, I almost dropped out um, because I ran out of money. And fortunately, I had a teacher who was very uh, influential on me. And when I told her that I was gonna have to drop out of the program, she thought it was because it was too challenging and actually it was more financial uh, based. So she said, don't drop out. Instead, what I'd like you to do is, you know, apply for scholarships. I would write you a letter, letter of recommendation. And uh, have you ever thought about the teaching associateship program? And so that was my first introduction into being able to teach at the collegial level, although I did technically do a UTeach opportunity at Irvine where I designed and implemented my own course on YouTube. Uh, but that one in itself was its own learning experience. This was more within the field of what I was pursuing. So I was fortunate enough to apply and get a position. And that's when I actually started teaching uh, while I was also pursuing my master's degree. And that's the amazing. Two, yeah, the, it was a great opportunity. Granted, we don't get paid as much as like the actual professors, uh, but it was a great experience, uh, and it really made the program more worthwhile because not only were we learning about all these theories and concepts and methods, but then we could also apply them in our own teaching as well uh, because the program is very theory-based, and it's always great to have opportunities uh, to apply this theory to something. So when I was in graduate school, I started teaching public speaking, 
and uh, argumentation as well. And what I've noticed quickly about when you talk to people about what you do for a living, I always say I'm a teacher and they say, what do you teach? I say, or where do you teach? I say at the, uh, the collegial level and they're like, well, what do you teach? And I say public speaking. Or if I'm trying to engage or intrigue this person, I'll say uh, guess. So usually the hint I'll give them, because usually they guess like English or history for some reasons. And <laughs> I guess you have the look of a history teacher I, I guess or an English so, teacher. That professorial look that only teaches in the humanities. <laughs> and and so I, I give them a hand like this is, we are never not doing this. And that sort of leaves them a little psychology thinking. And then I was like, well, it's communication. So when you talk about that you teach public speaking, everyone likes to talk about how much they hate public speaking. Or they on a rare occasion talk about how a teacher who was a public speaking teacher was influential towards them. Uh, but mostly they talk about this fear of public speaking that they have. And for someone who has his own fears and anxieties, uh, public speaking for me was not one of them. I just felt comfortable uh, talking in front of a large audience. I knew that as long as I was prepared and knew what I was talking about and kept it concise and knew my audience, I was going to do fine. And, Did you just picture everyone in their underwear? Oh, no. I've heard no, that no. always works. Well, we'll talk about that later, but visualization <laughs> is not something I recommend at all. <laughs> it is. I feel like it actually heightens your anxiety when you see people in such precarious states. Uh, but I ended up uh, having uh, these conversations with people. And for me, public speaking was easy until you realize that not every speech that you give or the occasion or context or setting is the same. So I'll share with you the last time I gave a big speech. And my big speech, I mean, is like I had a large audience and it was like a big to do and it's in its own ritual, and which is uh, the best man's toast at my brother's wedding. So before my brother got engaged uh, and I had to always told him that if I was not his best man, I would not show up to his wedding. And <laughs> fortunately, before he proposed, he asked me to... Um, be, or he, I already knew he, I was going to be his best man. It was sort of, we have that, the nice thing about having a brother close in age is we, as we got older, started to relate more to one another. And as, uh, when he told me he was going to propose, we were already celebrating acting like she said yes. And <laughs> that's when I had this, this fear, this anxiety sort of creep up inside of me unbeknownst to myself. And this was the first type of public speaking anxiety that people experience, which is the pre-preparation phase. And normally, as I stated earlier, I don't get anxious about speaking in front of an audience, but this was different. And what made it different was that my brother and I previously at my sister's wedding had given a speech that was very favorable to everyone who was there, which was mostly family. Uh, my sister married uh, a man who didn't have a lot of family or friends, but most of the people in the audience I knew. So I was able to sort of understand the audience and sort of give this speech to uh, this audience. And, and so my brother and I had this really good back and forth. We, it was really funny. There was a lot of um, moments of laughter. And what happened was, is once people found out my brother was engaged and that I was the best man, everyone had this expectation for me. And this expectation is what is Matthew going to do that's going to make us laugh? And I was all for it. I thought, you know, I was still riding high off of the, the excitement of the previous speech and the rea reaction from other people. 
But because this expectation was so high, I noticed that anxiety started to creep more and more inside of me. So that's when I started to experience uh, pre-preparation anxiety. And pre-preparation anxiety is that moment you realize you have to give a speech. So when I talk to students about the different types, I always ask them, what was the moment you experienced pre-preparation anxiety? And they think, oh, it's the first day of school. Oh, no, it's the when you signed up for the class. I'm like, really, it's when your counselor, your friend, or a classmate mentioned you had to take public speaking in order to fulfill the oral communication requirement to transfer or graduate from uh, a community college or a CSU university. Uh, the UC system does not require oral communication as a requirement, which is interesting, but I'm not going to go into that. Is that something, pre-preparation anxiety, is that something that you think everyone experiences or is there varying levels to sort of all of these different anxieties? Absolutely. Uh, different levels for sure. Uh, studies have shown people have the highest form of anxiety in the pre-preparation, you know, when they actually realize they have to give a speech, and also in the pre-performance uh, stage. And, and so the pre-performance stage is the third one right before you actually give the speech. So after the pre-preparation phase, uh, you then move on into the uh, preparation um, state uh, stage. And that's when I started to spend months trying to craft this best man's speech. I spent hours, uh, sleepless nights. I had like eight pages of single space notes of jokes, <laughs> anecdotes, things I wanted to do. And in the end, I still wasn't done. Uh, and it was right after my brother proposed and my now sister-in-law said yes, six months later. Like I thought it was going to be one of those very common prolonged engagements, but no, she was like six months to the date after she said yes. Wow. And <laughs> she was very organized. And what happened was I thought I had a lot of time, but the closer and closer you get to it, um, the more anxiety you start to feel. So it wasn't quite done. Like I'd done a few run throughs. I pitched a few ideas, but they weren't landing yet. But I felt like this is sort of the same feeling I was having in the speech that my brother and I gave at my sister's wedding. So it's, it's all part of the process. So I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and my brother and his now wife were getting married in our hometown in the Central Valley. So I, as the days were leading up to it, I had a speech and I had notes, but it wasn't a fully formed speech yet. I ended up driving up uh, the day of the rehearsal. And when I drove up the day of the rehearsal, I get to my parents' house and my mother is, of course, going around getting things ready for the rehearsal dinner, which she and my father were hosting. And then my, one of my sisters, I have three older sisters, one of my sisters was there and she, I remember her saying something along the lines of, I don't want to burden you or I don't want to add more pressure to you, but people have really high expectations for the speech. <laughs> And I was like, great. All right. So and I'm thinking this is just fuel for the fire. Then I go to the rehearsal dinner and my other sister made this comment about, oh, we found someone who's going to record your speech. It's going to be great. And I'm like, awesome. So we have documentation. It's making and your anxiety more and more. <laughs> my anxiety is rising <laughs> at this point. And then to the, it's at that point where I'm not even enjoying the moment. I, I'm so right. like rehearsing in my head. I'm thinking of like what I should say. And then uh, the, I didn't even go out that night, I think, or actually I cut it uh, short because usually married couples, they'll go out the night before at the rehearsal dinner, just some time with the friends. 
Uh, I don't even think I did that. I think all my brother and his groomsmen's went out and then I went back to his place and I just kept working on the speech. <laughs> and the next day I'm getting ready with my brother and then we go to our parents' house where all the groomsmen were meeting. And one of my, uh, my other sister was there and she was my ride to the church. And I had asked her to print out the speech because I was like, okay, it's as formulated as I can make it. And she prints it out for me. And then we're driving to the church and we're, there's this pause. And then all of a sudden we're at the stoplight and she turns to me and she's like, so I looked at, over your speech and I'm not so sure about a few parts. <laughs> and, and I was like, great. So I'm about to walk down the, this aisle with my brother by his side and, and witness uh, this ritual, uh, this ceremony. Uh, and uh, I'm just like, trying not to pass out. I'm, I'm feeling so anxious and, and worried. And then even in the photos themselves, and I feel bad, you could tell I'm not having a good time. Like I have like these grimaces or I have like these fake smiles. And it's probably because I kept rehearsing my speech in my head. And then uh, we get to the actual ceremony. Cause the one thing I don't like about being in a wedding party is you don't get to enjoy it as much as when you're actually right. a guest. Because you have to, there's a lot of labor that's pretty intensive. So finally, a lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility you have to, do. especially when you're like a, a key role, like best man or maid of honor or, oh, thing, yeah. or the presider. So we get to the ceremony. They introduce us with Star Wars, like the done or what is it? The Star Wars mm. theme music. I'm not a musically inclined person, so you're just gonna <laughs> have to imagine it for yourself. But uh, I enter there and then I'm mingling here and there and people keep bringing up the speech like, hey, are you going to you know, give a trost like you did your your brother-in-law? And a trost is a combination of a toast and a roast. So you're talking about how great they are, but you're also mentioning what's not so great about them, kind of a poking a little bit of fun at them. That's funny. And, uh, and so I'm getting all of this from all these people and I'm trying to keep my composure and not freak out. And... Then it comes to that point where we're all seated down and we, I don't know if it was before or after dinner. I think it was after dinner because uh, if it was before, I don't even remember eating that much, but I ended up uh, standing when the DJ calls up for the maid of honor and the best man to, to give their speeches. And my sister-in-law's younger sister was the maid of honor. And so she gave her speech, which was essentially her crying into a microphone for like two minutes. And it was, it was not, was, was, it, was it rehearsed? <laughs> she actually wrote it on the way to the church. And I meant the in, crying. <laughs> yeah, it was on the right. It was like 15 minutes. So I've been spending like six months in torture here over this speech. And she's like 15 minutes. Got it. And so she, she gave the speech and she's just crying and I'm like standing next to her and I'm not even comprehending what's going on. So then the DJ calls me up. And says, all right, now we're going to hear from the best man, uh, Matthew. And then the audience gives this like, woo, like they're really excited for this speech. And I open up with this joke. And this is the, the joke I love to say in regards to my brother and I because of our chosen professions. Uh, I teach public speaking and my brother is a funeral assistant. So we both make our living off of other people's fears, which is this idea of, you know, death or giving a public speech. And I gave this this joke, this, this is like my lead in and nobody laughed. And that that's hard <laughs> when you start <laughs> off with a joke 
and nobody laughs. I mean, there might have been a couple of chuckles, but the audience was different this time around. I had mentioned earlier it was mainly family and friends whom I had known, but my brother had married someone who came from a large family. And her family was very centralized in the area. So there was a lot of them in the area. And even the ones that lived abroad or in another state still came in for this wedding. So we were okay. actually outnumbered for, for the first time. And I, I can't, I don't even remember another occasion in which we were outnumbered, but we we're outnumbered. And I opened up with this joke and then nobody laughed. And the dread of the six months was there and it was actualized. <laughs> And I had this moment of, okay, you know, I had two options. One, I could just sort of not give the speech and just say, you know, all right, well, thank you everyone for being here and just sit down. Or I could continue on with the speech. So I went with option B and I continued on with the speech. Or option C, just cry into the mic. (laughs) You know, that that was definitely a good option too, right? You can take in. So out out (laughs) ugly cry the, the maid of honor. You know, I, we should have just done our speech together and cried in the microphone. There you go. <laughs> well, I think the fact that it was already uh, done mm-hmm. was a reason why you could have used it again. I Probably. <laughs> I'd be like, you know, why not? But I ended up having that moment of, all right, we got to do this. I spent a lot of work on it and I just, I did it. And then the I said my last part, which is like raising the glass. And I got like a light clap, like kind of. Like Matt, wait, Matt, wait, wait. I think we need to. I think Matthew deserves a round of applause. Thank from, you. From Thank us. you. It's, there you go. Like, hey, to that joke. I'm just saying. Okay, you would have heard a ha. Exactly. I mean, I was. I just like even a light chuckle. Like that was my softball warm up. And <laughs> and I ended up after that just sort of going. Oh, so going through the post performance. So the pre performance was me leading up to when I actually gave the speech. So listening to my sister in law being at that venue, because those are the moments leading up to when you have to give the speech. And so this is really hard for some people, especially like in a classroom setting, where if they're like number six in the list of seven speakers, they're so focused on themselves and their own speech, they're not even listening to the previous speakers as well, because they're in, in, in tune with what's going on. So the- that's when I usually have the most anxiety, actually, is the pre-performance. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's um, it just personally, yeah. I- I'm I'm usually good. Uh, pre-preparation, maybe a little bit. Preparation, no anxiety. When it gets to pre-performance, though, mm-hmm. especially if I have to wait. Oh, yeah. In any case where it's like if something's running late or mm-hmm. whatever it is and I have to wait longer, my anxiety just keeps spiking more and more. Absolutely. it's it's Especially if it's at the end of the class day. And you're like, am I am I gonna go the next day? You know, oh. everybody would always pick to go like, yeah, we'll go fifth. You know, nobody wants to go first. <laughs> and then you're just like, you're just staring at the clock, like, are we gonna run out of time? Are we gonna run out of time? And then eventually they're like, oh, you know, let's just call it for today. And you're like, yes. Then you realize you're going first tomorrow. Yeah, but I mean, it's I always feel like you're always as prepared as you can in the moment. But I definitely have those students for sure, Matt. And I gotta tell you. When they're when they ask, are you sure you know you want me to go? We only have so much time, and I'm like, <laughs> I I absolutely want you to go and, and do this speech. <laughs> I would hate to have you have to delay it two more days or whatever until you have to do it again. And so there's a then and there's a performance anxiety. Uh, that's the the stage in which you are uh, giving the speech and then performing, <laughs> performing. Uh, absolutely. And then there's the one thing that you don't realize after you give the speech is the post-performance anxiety. 
And this is when your inner critic comes out and it's basically pinpointing all the things that went wrong in your entire speech and neglecting anything that went right. And my post-performance anxiety was high. And I basically remember, actually, well, what I've been told is after I gave my speech, I basically for the rest of the evening was no more than six feet away from the bar. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and like some people, like my godmother said it was a good speech, but I also felt like she's my godmother and she's always going to think whatever I do is great. And, and then my, uh, my, but you know, it's always awkward when you're about to cross paths with someone at this event. And usually at this event, like everyone's really friendly and excited to see each other. But when you're about to cross paths with someone, you know, and you could feel them tensing up before they cross paths with you. <laughs> like, what am I going to say to him after the speech? <laughs> exactly. And so you just got to play it off. And so oh, I just definitely. went, I went through the, the emotions of just, you know, it is what it is and I can't dwell on it because I did the best I could given the situation. And so what I love telling uh, the speech, or the reason I love telling the speech is because not only does it demonstrate the different uh, types of public speaking anxiety, uh, stages like pre-performance or pre-preparation, preparation, pre-performance, performance, and post-performance, but I also let students know that public speaking anxiety or communication apprehension is something that we all experience and doesn't really go away. You just learn to manage it. Because when I had given that best man's uh, toast or speech, it was after I had been teaching public speaking for over two years. So it was clearly a sign of those who can't do teach. But ideally, I, I use it to reinforce this idea of it's a skill. You got to keep practicing, pre uh, preparing, and you got to accept the fact that sometimes it's not going to go as well as you'd hoped. And you just got to self-reflect and strive to be do better next time. And so oh, I haven't had the opportunity to give any other best men's uh, speeches. And I don't think I'll ever will. But what I like about this one is years later, people still keep coming up to me, especially my sister-in-law's side of the family or their close friends. And they keep referring to me like, oh, he's the, uh, the speech guy. He's the best man's <laughs> guy. And then... I've come to realize, I feel like after a while, this speech is starting to get reevaluated in a different context. You know how some movies weren't big when they came out, but then they can become like cult followings and then they get right. like midnight showings. And so I feel like this speech is sort of like uh, the, <laughs> the Orson Welles movie, the a Citizen Kane of best man speeches. If you <laughs> Not appreciated for when it first came out, but later on reevaluated and appreciated. It, it just had to simmer a little bit. People mm -hmm. had to, yeah, you know, oh, let I, it simmer I, and then they understood. It became better and better. Absolutely. You, you had to be small doses, I feel like, people to really take it in. Uh, yeah. All at once is probably just too overwhelming and they needed time <laughs> to process what they just oh, definitely. witnessed. Yeah. I, I have a best man speech story for you as well. I'll, I'll, I'll make it super quick though. My, uh, my big bro in the fraternity got married this year. And so uh, at some point last year, he asked me to be his, uh, his best man. So, you know, of course, I agreed and went through some of the same motions, right? Pre-preparation anxiety uh, a little bit as soon as he asked. You know, I already I was like, I need to write a speech. Mm -hmm. You know, I went through all those motions. Um, the preparation sort of as it got closer. But then mine, mine changed a little bit. So... So as I was uh, preparing and then as I was thinking about what I'm going to write, and I had 
you know, I, I had a couple of months, uh, mm. maybe like five or six months, uh, similar to you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wasn't, you know, super stressed about it. I, I tend to, I tend to prepare, but I, I try to uh, leave a little bit of it to um, uh, to just do it on the spot a little bit, or mm -hmm. as it gets closer, just because it helps me think about. It. I'll write down ideas, but I won't make anything until it, the time comes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we're um, uh, you know obviously COVID hit, mm -hmm. so they had to make some changes, and they decided that they're not going to do. Um, uh, after the ceremony, they're not going to do any kind of reception. So that got moved. Uh, so then it was just a ceremony. And, you know, I took a deep breath because mm -hmm. I was like, hey, it's there's no reception. I don't have to give the speech. There you go. So um, as it gets closer, probably about three, four weeks out at this point. Uh, three weeks out, sorry. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he, he calls me one day. Maybe, maybe it was less than, it was two weeks out. He calls me and the the guy that was supposed to do the ceremony, right? It was one of our other friends, again, from the fraternity. And uh, he had just found out that uh, he may have been exposed to COVID. Ooh. So uh, he calls me and he's like, hey, like, you know, I, I hate to ask this, but do you think you can uh, do the ceremony for us? <laughs> so, right. you know, of course, I, I'm the best man. You know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I need to, to to make sure that the day goes well. So mm -hmm. I went, I got ordained. Uh, and so now I had us online. Yeah, I, okay. I did. All right. Uh, the universal life church. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Yep. Um, so now I had a second phase of pre pre-preparation anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, and preparation anxiety. Uh, I had two <laughs> weeks to write, to convert my, um, my best man speech into a, uh, a ceremony, oh. uh, and learn what I'm actually supposed to say during the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I went through very, very much of the same motions. You know, yeah. I, I converted it, I wrote it down, did a lot of practicing and then pre-performance comes. And so we're there and we're supposed to start at, I think like four. So they delay it a little bit. Now, you know, that's when my anxiety starts spiking. Mm -hmm. And I, that, that's the worst for me is the pre-performance portion, mm -hmm. because no matter how much I prepared, if I have to, if, if I go there and I gave the speech at four, completely fine. Yeah. Um, but if I have to go there and now I'm waiting, uh, not fine. <laughs> uh, luckily I, I had pre-planned for this as well. Mm -hmm. So I had a little flask of whiskey on me. So, you know, went off to the side, took a little swig, yep. gave it a couple minutes to, uh, mm -hmm. to set in. But anyway, uh, you know, I, I, I gave the speech, I did the ceremony performance was, um, uh, my performance anxiety seems to, uh, start off at the top and then yeah. it, it goes down sort of as I get going. Uh, so gave my, you know, gave the speech ceremony. Uh, and then it was over. And I think the best part, uh, or the best way to not have post performance anxiety, I, I learned that day, yeah, is when you finish giving the ceremony, and the people come up to you, especially people you've never met. And they, you know, they tell you how, you know, how good the ceremony yeah. was. So as soon as that happened, you know, their family came up and they people I've never met. Yeah. They're like, you know, it was such an amazing ceremony, this and that. Yeah. Uh, just any anxiety about any post-performance anxiety was completely gone. Oh, well, that's, that's good. And I especially like your, your approach to taking a swig of something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I drank uh, before my brother's uh, wedding or not. I, I probably was afraid it would affect my ability to speak or not, but uh, I was actually just thinking about 
when you were having to uh, do your ceremony and convert your uh, speech into an actual ceremony, uh, did you have like anecdotes or stories you had to take out or is there anything like you wish you could have said, but it sort of the, the context had changed? Um, I mean, there was definitely stuff I wanted to say mm -hmm. that obviously I didn't want to say during the ceremony. Um, mm -hmm. So the context had definitely changed. There, there weren't really any stories that I, I was going to say that I don't think could have, you know, that that would have been out of place. Mm -hmm. um, but keeping in mind that most of the people there were their families because mm -hmm. because of COVID, it was a much smaller wedding. It was very, Absolutely. very close people. Uh, so I did have to keep that in mind and sort mm -hmm. of only say things that uh, that were uh, family appropriate. Whereas if it was the best man speech and we were at a reception, I think I might I may have said uh, at least told another story or two yeah. that may have you know teetered within that uh, that gray area of Absolutely. if it's uh, <laughs> if yeah. it's acceptable or not. And and I can't I I can't emphasize enough when you're about to tell stories about someone, you always need someone who's close to not only you but the person that you're going to be talking about to get their approval. Yep. Uh, I know with uh, my my sister, the speech my brother and I get my uh, sister's wedding. We went through my sister, Sarah, and if she wasn't sure, we, she then went to our mother. And if our mom laughed, we knew that was a go. So, <laughs> so no, I, um, after I wrote down the ceremony, I actually, I sent it to, mm -hmm. to both of them, or I suggested to send it to both of them yeah, to make sure they were okay with it. You know, I, I obviously, it's their ceremony, it's their wedding. I didn't mm -hmm. want to uh, say anything or make it in any way that they'd you know, they didn't like or enjoy. Um, but they, yeah. they didn't want to hear it. They just, you know, they, they, they trusted me. So it worked out. That's good. Cause I can't tell you how many uh, occasions there at weddings where people bring up when people gave speeches that weren't appropriate and <laughs> <laughs> they tend to remember the awkwardness more so than, than what was said. So you, right. I really feel like anytime you give that type of speech, unless it, if you're going to be funny or share embarrassing stories or just funny stories, you always need that second uh, opinion of whether or not this would be appropriate or not. Because the last thing you want to do when you're giving a speech is give a memorable speech that's more infamous than for its heart warming message yeah you want people to remember the wedding not your speech true that true that <laughs> <laughs> no there, there, there was a story i wanted to tell if i mm -hmm. gave the best man speech oh yeah or not a story but i guess a small anecdote about how um i, I was gonna be happy now that he was getting married yeah that uh i wouldn't be getting calls at 3 a.m to uh <laughs> to tell him his drunk ass <laughs> to get in the car and go home <laughs> But yeah. obviously, that was not very appropriate mm -hmm. uh, for for the ceremony, so uh, that got cut. I went through my brother in law, who, granted, I don't think would was the best person uh, for approval on certain things I wanted to say about my brother. So when I was said those things, and I'm not going to mention them in this um, podcast, but I will say that when I did say them, uh, the only table that laughed in the entire. Uh, reception was the table that consisted of like all my male cousins and then it, and it's like and then my brother-in-law's he was also in the wedding party and so he's like laughing give me the thumbs up so i gave this made this joke about my brother on my brother's expense and it's related to star wars 
And I realized this is why knowing your audience is so important in, in the context and setting, because I feel like I shouldn't have told that joke because it was for a select few and not everyone. And right. so I definitely will say uh, that when it comes to things like strategies, uh, knowing your audience is, is so important when you're crafting your speech. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, unless you have any other uh, best man uh, stories, <laughs> we can talk about something else. Matt, do you have any best man stories? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't. Uh, you've, you've been awfully quiet. I, I, I know we have another Matthew on the show today, but you know, you can still talk. We're not replacing you with a new Matthew. I, I was worried this is the interview replacement, you know? It's like all of a sudden I'm training the new guy to take over my job, you know? It's like, it's like, it's like Matthew, do you go by Matt or Matthew? What can I call you, you know? It's just real easy for a shot. It's like a shot's like a, like I don't know, like an old guy or something. Just He calls everybody Matt. Like it doesn't matter if the co-host in the future, his name is John or something. Like, so Matt, you know, just like. Exactly. <laughs> it's like James Bond, just re- replacing the actor necessarily. Yeah, uh, I definitely will say that when it comes to uh, talking a lot, I definitely think it's like a Matthew thing. Like I feel like Matthews generally talk a lot, but I love the rapport shot between you and I right now. And if there ever comes a day where Matt's no longer popular and uh, you know, market <laughs> research is showing that his his likability has taken a dive, then. We could always try this out again, for sure. No, definitely. Uh, the only well, problem is, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid if I replace uh, Matt with another Matthew, mm-hmm. people might not be able to to tell the difference. And then, you know, I don't know if that'll ever go back up. Hey, new thought. Let's just replace a shot. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. then you won't have a show. No, we will have a show. We'll have, we'll have tons of content. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. You, you'll just have a 24-hour live shows. It'll <laughs> never. It'll never end. Yeah, all the antics we get into. But it is something that, um, you know, I am fascinated by what Matthew has to say. Uh, You know, we've been friends for a long time, and I know that he's um, obviously taught public speaking and and taught in all these different courses. Mm -hmm. And it's just I'm practicing being a good listener. And, um, you know, I'm really in depth in this conversation and and really loving it. So no, we appreciate that. Being good listeners is very good. Um, But being a good listener when you're uh, hosting a podcast uh, is not very good because you want to engage with your interviewee, dude. No, I, honestly, though, I, no, 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 nah, I, 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 I give him a lot of crap. Let's discuss this, okay? You, you don't need to defend him. He's would fine. You, somebody who teaches public speaking, give give a shot, a little bit of advice, because you know what? When there's a guest, he's Mister Talk, 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 Talk. But as soon as there's no guest, what does he do? He's like, all right, all right, Matt, you're talking too much. Can please, 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 you know? Look at this guy. All of a sudden, he's got all this confidence, huh? His his uh, clearly his performance anxiety is very low today. <laughs> we've been doing this for a year i have no performance anxiety at this point <laughs> me neither we just hit recording go <laughs> yep uh well i will say that uh you know it's great to be here for sure because this is something that i think that men need to talk more about and it's sort of like the elephant in the room and once you sort of start opening up and being a little bit vulnerable especially when the situation calls for it or when you're with uh, people that you trust and know then I really feel like you. It sort of leads to these these deeper, more enriching conversations about life, and and then you really start to feel more connected with each other. I, I know personally, I got a mentor recently uh, who is a cousin that uh, married into our, my family, and 
And uh, he's older, uh, but at the same time also, he's sort of at a point in his life where, um, you know, he is uh, also as a mentor. And so when I had breached the topic of, uh, you know, I'm looking for a mentor. And so he was totally down for it. And with the nice thing about someone who has a mentor already, they kind of already know what you're looking for. And so, so I definitely will say that this uh, podcast is something that, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people wish they had done or it was an idea that they probably had. And I'm just glad that we finally had someone who went about and did it finally. So thank you. No, I appreciate that. that. Thank you. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know the story, but we actually once start this podcast uh, four years ago at this point. Oh, yeah. Um, and so we got together and that was right when we were sort of in the depths of our high anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got together, we recorded a, a handful of episodes, maybe three, four episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we just never published. Uh, yeah. We recorded. We felt great. <laughs> we we had our own therapy. We felt great. Uh, and then we just we didn't have enough time to um, to devote to actually publishing and editing and doing all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just sort of left it. And it wasn't until uh, sort of 2020 came around. We had a little bit more time because of the lockdowns, because of being home more um, that we, you know, we finally had enough time to jumpstart it again and actually get it going. Cool. Well, like I said, this is this is great. And I'm, I'm, I remember I was really into podcasts. Uh, uh, probably yeah, right in 2020, I was really into podcasts. And when I came across your guys' podcast, like I just I started listening to episodes. And I also started following you on Instagram. And there were a few times where you've posted uh, infographs that I, I thought were not only hilarious, but very relatable. Uh, there was one where you talked about work ethic. Uh, or a strong work ethic. And for an anxious person, what that really means is you're so feel, fearful of losing your job, you're going to do as much as you can in order to keep <laughs> everything. And I was like, I, I totally empathize with that. I, I too have found myself having a strong work ethic, not because I value it, but because I fear, you know, right. the, what would happen if I'm not good at my job. Yeah, and, and my wife, Andrea, is the mastermind behind all those memes and our social media um, presence. So uh, I'll, I'll let her know that she's doing at, at least a good job on some of the posts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't go on Instagram as much as I used to. It's one of those uh, apps that I, I basically use to either uh, watch uh, weight, uh, Olympic lifting uh, videos, or I will sometimes like if it's family, uh, they'll post pictures um, that, uh, especially of my nephews. And so I'll watch, on those pictures, but I don't comment or like anymore. I haven't for the last several years, mainly because I don't want to engage in it uh, like right. that. I, I appreciate when people post stuff, but at the same time also, it's just not, um, not something I feel is good for mental health for a lot of oh, people. Oh, we completely agree. Definitely. And, and I definitely will say if it's a brand, uh, then yeah, put your content out there, but I'm not big on the whole idea of, of, you know, why people choose to engage in social media. I, I definitely feel like if you want to be a part of that community, it's not just passively consuming, but also actively engaging uh, in it as well. But but sharing not for the self-glorification or gratification of, of yourself, but more just be able to continue the conversation or add to what is being already shared. Right. Yeah. And we have, I think, two episodes 
specifically on uh, social media and social media anxiety mm-hmm. um, because they're such it, it's such a big topic and That's there's true. so much anxiety that comes with um, you know posting the right picture getting enough likes yeah. uh, I mean and you know Instagram and some of these other uh, big social media giants have realized this right that's why they've rolled out these updates about hiding your likes now mm-hmm. so that you know you and others can't see them and mm-hmm. doing all these things to try and um, curb the uh, impact that it's had on mental uh, on people's mental health mm-hmm. well that's great I'm glad that um, there's people who have the power that are taking responsibility for it yeah, to some extent. To some I think extent. It's, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's still a bit, so they right? can and still have people on the platform. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. no, money. it's definitely for their. Yeah, it's definitely for their profit. But <laughs> exactly. at least it's helping people a little bit. You got to keep the client happy, the consumer content. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, what what you said, Matthew, really illustrated that point because you're on Instagram every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You're not liking, you're not commenting. You're just kind of a, a passerby mm-hmm. in some sense, right? Yeah. And a lot of people they post for gratification right am yeah. i going to get x amount of likes did people like my photo did, did, did i look pretty did they comment mm-hmm. whatever but then they don't realize that a lot of times when they're probably using the platform as well they're doing the same thing you're doing right they're just yeah. scrolling past oh it, you know it's almost like it's too much effort to double tap now right before mm-hmm. it was like everything had to be liked right just you yeah. go down your list when it was chronological and bam 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 all my friends oh my god look there's yeah. a dog there's a cat whatever now you get to the point where you're like and eh, I'm just kind of scrolling by whatever. Mm-hmm. But then you don't realize like that's contributing to their like posts as well. Right. And mm-hmm. it depends on why they're doing it. So if, like you said, if somebody opens up and they're posting something like a serious topic, I'd make sure to like it because I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm here or I comment on it, whatever. But if it's just a picture of like what they ate or mm-hmm. I don't know, something like some sunset or something, I'm like, ah, whatever. It's not like enriching my life. So I just scroll on by. So, you know, it kind of induces its own problem. Exactly. And, and, and I, what I use it for is my own purpose of, uh, because I do, uh, I'm a weightlifter and I do, uh, as a hobby, uh, Olympic lifting, what has added to my knowledge is being able to watch these videos of, you know, professionals who have been doing it for years. And even people who I was, uh, trained with, uh, see them lift. And I think it's just sort of allows me to see proper technique and form that I normally wouldn't get. And because it's Instagram and they're just short snippets, I could actually watch the same movement over and over again because a lift like a snatch or a clean and jerk is a relatively quick movement. So the the loop or the replay or me going up and down to restart the video allows me to watch it over and over again. And then I'm able to take what I saw and then figure out a way to incorporate it into my own technique work as well. And then with uh, just family photos, as I mentioned with the nephews, uh, my, my, I'm in a group text with my family. It's called primary group because in types of groups, the first group that you are a part of is your family, which is your primary group. So we call it primary group. And in this group text, I'm always getting photos or videos of my nephews, but I always feel like they're, they're, I mean, anything with my nephews is great, but I feel like the quality isn't as great as the ones that they save to post online. So those are the ones that like, those are the, the blue ribbon photo, um, essay winning photos of that. Yeah, the social media worthy ones. Exactly. No filter. Hashtag. Blue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I know, I know we kind of, uh, went off the far end of, uh, talking about, um, 
public speaking, but mm-hmm. was there uh, anything else that you wanted to touch upon as uh, as it relates to public speaking? Oh, sure. If you'd like, uh, I could go over the uh, different kinds of communication apprehension, uh, trade anxiety, state anxiety, scrutiny, fear. Uh, and that could lead me to talking about some stage uh, strategies for public speaking, if you like. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be very valuable to uh, both uh, us and all the, all of the listeners. Absolutely. So the sphere of public speaking, it's also referred to as communication apprehension and why people have this apprehension towards communicating in public uh, has to deal with uh, a lot of things. Like I don't want to go all the way back to the history of public speaking to the ancient Greeks and how they memorize speeches. And it was like considered the greatest form of knowledge. Um, But I feel like... Can I interject real quick? Uh, When you're teaching your classes, do you... um... Do you give a better grade or is it, uh, do you ask your students to memorize their speeches? Speaking of memorization? That's uh, that's one of the first questions I get after, do I offer extra credit? And no, I don't offer (laughs) extra credit. But uh, I do ask, get some students who think you have to memorize the speech. And I'm like, no, don't memorize your speech. It it went out with the Greeks, uh, mainly because when you memorize, it comes off very rehearsed and it doesn't feel like authentic or real or natural. And, and, when people are giving speeches, they think it's bad to use vocal fillers like um or uh, and excessively, absolutely. But on occasion, if you interject with a um or uh, that's fine. Just don't keep drawing attention to it. So I've had some students who it's like every other word is um or uh, or they do hedges like, you know, or right. Did you know? No. Or like. Yeah. Hey, let's not talk about right. Okay. I say right every other word. (laughs) So, so on a, if they become excessive, then they're going to take away from the message. But I definitely will say, I tell students, don't memorize their speeches because they are allowed notes. And the notes that they're allowed is called a preparation outline, where it's essentially like keywords or phrases, uh, things that they will elaborate upon. And so when a student is giving a speech in my class, it's broken up into various stages. So I'll give them the prompt. So I'll give them an example of an informative speech. And the prompt for the informative speech is that they have to explain a concept, theory, or issue that they learned about in one of their other classes that they are taking at the college level. So it's a process for them to actually give the speech itself. Uh, Because I noticed when I signed a speech, students tend to wait to do everything the night before. And so I broke it up into different parts. So a month before they actually give the speech, they choose a topic. Then a week later, they do an annotated bibliography, which is when they conduct research. And I require that there be one primary source and uh, six secondary sources. And then they will do what is referred to as a preparation outline. And so the preparation outline is a full sentence outline that essentially lets the lets them know or for me the the teacher lets me know what they're going to be speaking and sharing and so that's when they would include their their citations their 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 fully fleshed out speech but what i don't want them to do is to read off their speech because then it becomes very boring and monotonous and uh, besides memory um there is other methods of delivery um such as memory, uh, impromptu, uh, then there's manuscript, which is when they would actually read off of their right. outline. And then there would be 
extemporaneous. And to it, for, what does extemporaneous mean? Extemporaneous means that they are giving a speech using brief notes. And okay. the brief notes comes in the form of a speaking outline. So once they do their preparation outline, I have them condense it into keywords and phrases. Because what I want them to do is have a notes that aren't verbatim what they're going to say, because then they read. And like I mentioned, it's very difficult to listen to. So they have keywords or phrases to remind them what it is that they're going to talk about. So I, I talk about how I have like a lesson plan that's very detailed. But when I use PowerPoint in a lecture, it's just keywords or phrases. And then even though I have my notes, I try to go off of the PowerPoint as much as I can because then it keeps the lecture more fluid uh, and um, as opposed to having to like read off of like a legal pad of paper. Right. And so once they do the speaking outline, if there's a visual aid requirement, something along the lines of like a poster board or a PowerPoint, uh, there's also that. And then there's the actual speech itself. And the speech is worth a majority of the points, but... It's not all only just about the speech because uh, I've had some students who get really anxious and they're not they're very shy and socially awkward or socially anxious. And I and I get it. But at the same time, also, uh, I can't um, I can't I can't play favorites or take into account uh, these things unless, of course, it's documented and they go through uh, uh, DSPS or disability services Right. Because then they will sh sh let me know what I can do because I'm not trained in that as much as they are. So they help me along that way. And, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So it's it, that's how I sort of break down um, the speech of why they give it. And I, and I forgot why we were on this topic because we were. Uh, I asked strategies. you about um, whether you ask your students to memorize their speeches or not. Uh, but going back to what you were saying, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's interesting that you say that mem uh, when people memorize their speeches mm -hmm. it sounds like it's um it doesn't sound natural what do you mean uh, it sounds like a talking robot when they read off of what they are saying well no uh, that's what i meant is when they're when i tend to read off of something mm -hmm. i wrote i sound like a robot because i'm reading verbatim whereas i guess w what i was trying to say was when i memorize something I don't remember everything exactly as i said it but at least i remember the major points so mm -hmm. as i'm speaking you know and I guess it's more uh, along the lines of the extemp extemporaneous mm -hmm. delivery. That's correct. Um, where I'll, I'll memorize the speech I wrote uh, and then I'll have like points that I mm -hmm. want to hit upon. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll convey the speech, just not word for word. Uh, so that's how I sort of craft the speech. And, and the other thing also going along the lines of um, when you're giving a speech is I teach them a certain formula. It's a very standard formula for giving a speech uh, with. That being said, there's three parts, the intro, body, and conclusion. Introduction is probably the uh, most important because that's going to engage your audience. So the first, very first thing you do, you got to grab their attention because people aren't just going to automatically start listening to you because you're talking. And then you got to build credibility so that they trust you. And then you got to explain to them why they should care. And that's the audience relevance. Then you have the central idea and then the preview points. Uh, so that's the structure of the speech. Uh, then leads to the body, which has the main and supporting points. And that's when they would bring in their supporting evidence. And then from there, it's the conclusion where they just essentially tell us what they've already said. Now, in terms of strategies, uh, when it comes to giving a speech, there's a variety of strategies uh, that you can choose from. 
I used to open up with this joke about what's the best way to get to Carnegie uh, Hall. And then I realized that not a lot of people know what Carnegie Music Hall is anymore. I feel like they're just more along the lines of um, like they don't know where it is, so they don't get the joke, which is the best way to get to Carnegie Music Hall is practice because it's a music hall and you have to be really good. Right. <laughs> I know, right? Once I started explaining the joke, that's when I realized I probably shouldn't use this joke anymore when I talk about strategies. You're going to have to I change think, it I think to that, TikTok. What's the I best way to, to get that. on TikTok or something? <laughs> practice. <laughs> I'm actually not on TikTok, so I don't know much about TikToks, but I do get occasional TikToks sent to me. Yeah, neither am I. I don't yeah. want uh, the Chinese stealing my data. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, just, I, think it's, I just see them posted on Instagram. So. Mm, so I think it's just one of those, like, it's one more thing to do. Uh, it's like Snapchat. It's like I never got into Snapchat because I like, it's just one more thing to do. And I, I just, I'm maxed out right now. Yeah, I get you. Um, what are some of the other strategies for public speaking? Oh, yeah. So... Practice and preparation is key. Uh, the other one that I always like to emphasize, but it's really hard for some people, is being enthusiastic. Uh, so this goes along the lines of sort of the fake it till you make it or fake it till you become it uh, mentality. But you, it's not so much about you changing your mindset. It's you sort of manipulating the audience into believing you're this confident person. Um, because if you're enthusiastic about it, your anxiety tends to go down and then people register that, oh, this person is very charismatic they're, they might, and they're very confident. We should listen to what they have to say, because if they're this big of a believer in what they're talking about, then we must listen. So, we, we've spoken a little bit about that as mm-hmm. well before. And there are studies that show that when you basically fake it right mm-hmm. when you put a smile on when you um you know walk with your sort of chest up yeah. shoulders back in a more uh um, positive i guess stature yeah uh, you you trick your body into producing those hormones to actually make you feel that way absolutely so yeah so if you smile your body will uh, your mind will eventually go like hey he's smiling it means something mm-hmm. positive is happening and then it'll start releasing the the you know the happy hormones yeah um, so it definitely works. I mean, you know, we, I, I, I faked every interview I've gone to. So makes <laughs> well, all these podcasts. Well, I, I do. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not usually a charismatic guy. Well, you it's well, you, you where it me. says, um, <laughs> you're yeah, hired a shot. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> um, it's like the quote that says, uh, it's something along the lines of, if you say something confidently enough, anybody will believe what you say, mm-hmm. you know? So like if you present that, as somebody who's like very enthusiastic about this topic or whatever, people just go like, oh, this person's enthusiastic. Like, that's, and that's, so I am with my anxiety. I start talking a lot more and people are just like, oh, like, yeah, he just like talks a lot. I'm like, yeah, but because because my thoughts don't stop. <laughs> this is the only way to get it to like, you know, curtail the, the a little bit. 21st century version of that is uh, when you see posts with quotes on them online. Yeah. And everyone thinks that it's a real quote, <laughs> but in reality, it's it's not like you know people just put quotes around something. Mm-hmm. At the bottom, they write Albert Einstein. It's yeah. like <laughs> everyone goes out and believes them. Like I think uh, I for my graduate mentor, it was her birthday, and she was holding class that night. And so it, it was my cohort. We all got together and we kind of had like a birthday party, and we had a birthday card that I got. And we started passing around, and uh, she was really into this. Uh, Frankfurt School of Philosophy philosopher um, Theodore Adorno. And so in the card, I remember writing, as Theodore Adorno once said, Alles gut zum Geburtstag, which is German for 
happy birthday. Now, I assume in his lifetime he said happy birthday, but I have no documentation <laughs> whatsoever that he has said happy birthday. I just assume that it's one of those phrases that people has has to have said in their life. If, right. Especially if they're in a culture where they honor birthdays. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Mm. Um, oh, sorry, I know we went off on a little tangent, but no, <laughs> back no, to those I strategies. Oh, but I, what I was going to say about uh, enthusiasm, and this will lead back to the other strategies, is on my teaching evaluations, I always tend to get high marks on enthusiasm. Like students, without a doubt, whether they liked me or not, will always say, he, this guy's very enthusiastic. And uh, I can't say I get such as high remarks for online learning because it's not the same in, environment. But uh, I always joke about I get high on enthusiasm because I always try to um, be enthusiasm, enthusiastic because I am inside, you know, anxious, fearful, and, you know, that, that chatter in your head of like, you know, it's not going well, people are staring at you type of thing. And uh, they don't see like the, the beads of sweat going down my back, um, but they do see my shoulders back, my chest is um, protruding, my chin is up, I'm making eye contact, I'm walking around, I'm using hand gestures. And so that's me sort of compensating for any sort of fears or anxieties that I have. Uh, and eventually you do it enough that eventually you become comfortable with Absolutely. Uh, other strategies, and I'll just go quickly over them because those are the sort of the main strategies I recommend. Everything else is sort of based upon your own preference. So besides practice and preparation, being enthusiastic and knowing the, the structure or formula of giving a speech, uh, I think it's always good to realize that you're doing better than you think and feel. Whenever I ask students to critique themselves or self-evaluate themselves, they always grade themselves harder than I actually did. And, you know, goes back to that post-performance anxiety. Uh, I also would say that, you know. To, to, to speak to that one, um, I, I know earlier uh, mm -hmm. we were talking about sort of the order you go in and mm -hmm. the, having that pre-performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, funny enough, what I tend to do or used to do, I guess, when I was in classes and we had presentations and things of that sort, was I would always volunteer to go first. Mm -hmm. Because as, as long as you go first, you have no pre-performance anxiety yeah. in most cases, right? Because the teacher asks who wants to go first, you say you want to go and you just go and do it. All that right. You don't have time to have that pre-performance. Um, but the other great thing about that was no one's gone before you yet. Mm -hmm. So the teacher doesn't have a gauge as to uh, how to grade you versus other people. Mm. So they're they're grading you only on your performance mm. versus if you, at least in my mind, that's that's how it would work. Uh, versus uh, if you went a little bit later, now they've seen some people, they yeah. have a gauge to what's, what's a good speech, what's a bad speech, yeah. you know, what's, what's an average speech. And now they might start grading you sort of based on other people's performance as well. I, I do. Well, I actually don't allow students to sign up for when they want to give their speech. I actually have them choose dates out of a hat because what I, I noticed is that uh, you might get someone who wants to go first and then all of a sudden it's, I want to give you second, I want to be third. And then no one wants to go after that. And you're basically right. like being like, okay, if no one's going to go, I'm going to walk out of this classroom right now. And if you didn't give your speech, then you get a zero. And that's when people <laughs> start to get out of their seats. That's pretty funny. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I usually assign them uh, and it's usually random, um, but it's just easier that way. And then it holds them accountable for being there on that particular day. Cause if they don't show up to the day that they're giving their speech, then I had this rule like they if they can't provide legal or medical documentation, 
then they can earn partial credit on the speech that they give it in the in my office during office hours. Because the thing about giving public or teaching public speaking is it requires a certain lab component with students giving their speeches and you're only given so much time. So if you have students that don't show up and your other days are pretty full, then you're not going to be able to squeeze them in. So it's sort of my way of maintaining that they're there. But uh, I find that when any class you're taking, whether it's public speaking, biology, history, uh, foreign language, you get as much out of it as you put in. So the more you put in, the more you're going to get out of it. The less you put in, the less you're going to get out of it. Absolutely. I feel like it's the same with anything else in life. True, so. true. And I think with uh, public speaking, uh, I feel like people don't realize that it's ephemeral. It's fleeting. It's in the moment. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even remember most of the time stuff much that my students have said. That's why I've always taken uh, notes when they're giving their presentations, because anytime a student wants to talk to me about a speech that they gave like last week, I don't certainly don't remember it. So I have to go back <laughs> to my notes. Uh, on occasion, there are students that will give speeches, especially persuasive speeches that on occasion will persuade me to take action, but they're very rare and far in, in between because most students, when it comes to topics, they tend to go with like, like generic stuff. generic common topics that I've, huh. I've heard so, so told so often that it's kind of having like the reverse effect like I don't want to adopt animals uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to recycle anymore I don't like I don't want to vote for politicians it's just it's kind of having that reverse effect so I try to I try to keep it local issues so on occasion I do get students that have very uh, great great speeches I had a student that gave a speech about a, uh, the air quality. Uh, the Central Valley is notorious for poor air quality. And one of the call to actions, which is like the minor changes that we can do to bring about this change was you, she suggested taking a, a fan, a box fan, and then getting an air filter and duct taping the air filter to your box fan. And uh, when we were having fires in California last year, severe fires, uh, and the air quality was bad, I literally got a box fan and an air filter and some duct tape and I, I, <laughs> I created an air filter. Now I use it to filter the air in my, uh, where I live. So that way uh, it's, it feels like fresh and it doesn't feel stale. Cause I know oh, like, awesome. when I don't have the fan going, so this is like a rare occasion. I've listened to thousands of speeches, but it's like one out of every thousand that'll actually, you know, push me to bring about change in my, in my life. Um, but yeah, I definitely will say, um, it's ephemeral, fleeting. Uh, you just got to step into your character, and then when it's over, step out. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I was about to say when you first brought up uh, uh, talking about some of your students and mm -hmm. how um, uh, you know you you don't remember a lot of their speeches. I was going to say, hopefully, none of your students are listening. But <laughs> but but then when you went into talking about uh, you know all of the different things you've heard about mm -hmm. and wish you could hear, you know, mm -hmm. sort of that you don't want to hear anymore. Uh, I think it would be a good thing if they were listening so they'll know not to touch upon those topics. Oh, I had a list. I called it the off topics list. And it was, I, I told students, all right, this is a list. If you give a topic on one of, or if you give a speech on one of these topics, it the best you can do is a C. And then I realized that's just mean because I'm not the only person in this audience. And so just because I may not be interested in what they have to say, doesn't necessarily mean that other people in the audience aren't intrigued uh, by it. 
I used to do themes uh, in my public speaking classes. Uh, one semester, I did a theme with food. Uh, that was really popular. I, I didn't realize how much people love talking about food. And oh, then, definitely. Oh, and then um, the other theme, though, and I realized this is pretty selfish of me, and I feel bad uh, after the fact, was it was on communication technologies. So that was my interest when I was in graduate school was communication technologies. And so I had that as a theme. What I realized, though, is no one else is really interested in that theme. So that was a really tough one because students had to give speeches on concepts that they don't really fully understand. But at the same time, also, I, I kept trying to reinforce, like, I'm not interested in you telling me everything about this. I want to know what you know about this topic and what you've learned and things like that. But teaching is trial and error. So you learn from your mistakes, much like students should learn from their mistakes because that's how you don't make those mistakes and you make better decisions. Absolutely. I mean, it's how life is for sure. Mm -hmm. Just in general, you know, if you don't make mistakes, you'll never learn. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's something that, um, growing up, uh, I think, uh, it, it caused some tension between me and my dad mm -hmm. because obviously he was a parent, so he didn't want, you know, his kids to make the same mistakes he did or just to mm -hmm. make mistakes in general. Uh, but I've always been of the mindset that, um, not the mindset, but I'm, I'm very much a rebel and mm -hmm. we've talked a little bit about sort of the four, what are they called, Matt? Tendencies. Tendencies, um, uh, which is a great book and just talks about, uh, you know, Matt's a questioner, I'm a rebel. But I've always been about, you know, I need to see it for myself or mm -hmm. learn it for myself or experience it for myself in order for me to uh, do or not do something, right? Uh. So if you tell me a... a uh, let's say a, a pen is hot and I shouldn't yeah. touch it. Like, yeah, now that I'm old enough, I understand that. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to touch it if it's hot. But, you know, when I was younger, that that concept didn't make sense to me yet. So mm -hmm. if you're telling me not to touch it, I need a good enough reason. Yeah. Or I'm going to go and touch it and then I'm going to get burned. And then next time I won't go and touch it because now I learned. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I will say last year I had this uh, revelation about teaching and I didn't realize how much teaching is watching students make mistakes that you can stop them from doing. But at the same time, also, they need to learn that way. And so a lot of what I do sometimes is watching students make these mistakes. And all you could do is just guide them through it and hope that they learn from it. And that, you know, it's, I always say that when we come when it comes to pub, ethical public speaking, uh, you never really want to call someone out for mistakes or errors or things like that because you don't know how that is going to affect them long-term wise and sort of the the feeling or trauma they might experience. And that's the last thing I want is, you know, someone, you know, not taking public speaking again or dropping out because of something I said or did. But at the same time, also, I feel like students need to learn from these mistakes. And sometimes they're ready to learn. And other times they need to keep making the same mistake until it finally sticks with them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. um, I think it almost in any case, unless obviously someone is, you know, already not feeling mm -hmm. uh, in the right, uh, you know, they're just not feeling well or they're emotional, whatever it is. Um, just constructive criticism is always uh, something that should be welcomed mm -hmm. uh, because they're, you know, someone is trying to make you better. And um, there, there are obviously ways that some people approach mm -hmm. it that may not be the right way. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and I know uh, we've spoken about this a little bit, 
before, but uh, going a little bit into Stoicism, mm-hmm. you know, the Stoics always say it's not, um, it's not the action. Um, basically, nothing is inherently good or bad. It's your reaction to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like your perception of it that makes it good or bad. Absolutely. So that I, I, I think looking at it in a more positive way to all, for all of that. Uh, has helped me grow a lot when, you know, someone makes a, a critique or a comment about something. Uh, you know, if I choose to take it in a negative way and I choose to get mad about it or something, it's not helping me and it's creating a tense situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I accept it for what it is, someone's opinion, yeah. and uh, accept it with uh, their best intentions, yeah. it's more of a way for me to grow. It's a suggestion. You could either take it or not. I know uh, when I catch students for plagiarism, I I tell them like, this does not define you, how you react will. And I I, like, they think I'm mad at them and they get really embarrassed. And I'm like, I'm not mad that you're plagiarizing. I'm mad at the fact that you thought I was dumb enough that I wasn't going to catch you. (laughs) I'm mad you got caught. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, and, and I've... I'm amazed. Sometimes students even leave like the hyperlinks in like, especially online. And then I, I've no, I've been able to copy and paste something from a response they give and boom, like Google search pops up right away. And I'm just all like, come on, like, this is not how you learn or this is not how you should learn. It takes you to top 10 presidential speeches and you're like, I didn't think you were going to get away with this. I did have a student recently. uh, I won't go into too much detail out of respect for the student, but they had um, given a they were supposed to give a speech analysis and they gave a speech analysis. But it was more like they were doing a summary of what everyone was saying about the speech. And it kind of bordered the lines of plagiarism because he wasn't citing or the student was not citing their sources. So anytime you reference something that is not your own words, you need to indicate to us that it is not yours, but someone else's. So that was, that was kind of recent, but I've had, I've had some pretty funny stories with students trying to uh, plagiarize. I had students that submitted the pictures from the websites on their outline. So like it would literally be the, the webpage with the pictures as part of their outline that they submitted uh, I've had students submit speeches that were English essays that were through turnitin.com with that. They submitted right. turnitin.com for other classes. Uh, I'm, you know, like I said, the hyperlinks I've had students that have, uh, gosh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a lot of uh, different situations. And that's, it's, those are the types of students that I'm just amazed at how much work they put towards not having to do work. Yeah. And it's like if you uh, shift that mindset to like, this is the work ethic I have, but I'm going to put it towards this. I think that the experience would be better. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the funniest story I'd heard of turnitin.com was one time someone submitted, maybe it wasn't turnitin.com, but mm-hmm. one time a student submitted an essay or something yeah. uh, to a professor. Um, and it ended up being uh, something that the professor had written like in <laughs> grad school or something. Nice. <laughs> nice. I love it. Yeah, that, that was a good one. Um, but uh, speaking of cheating uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, plagiarizing, uh, when I was in, I think I would have been in high school, um, I used to hate doing mathematical proofs. Okay. So when I was taking tests, I would always write the answer. Mm-hmm. And my teacher at first thought I was cheating. So for like the first two or three tests, she would call me and she's like, like yeah. you know, why are you cheating? 
there, how did you get to these answers? We need to see your work. Yeah, I got to show your work. Yeah, and and I hated doing it because it was such a waste of time. I, uh, you know, I could, mm-hmm. I sort of calculated all in my head and I would just write it down. Uh, so then I think one time she like put it in front of me, like basically sat me right in front and uh, like a brand new test or something and had me do it. And I, I did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then after that, she was convinced that, mm-hmm. you know, I... I'm actually doing it in my head and not cheating somehow. Ah, okay. Uh, so she let it slide a little bit more. I started showing a little bit of work. She let it slide a little bit more. So it cool. It worked out. Well, I'm glad there was a happy ending to that story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I agree. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, doing something out of like laziness in a sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. And also touching on how somebody can destroy your hopes and dreams with one comment. Was that, <laughs> I think I mentioned this before, but I used to, you know, in elementary school, middle school, be like mm-hmm. the kid that always had his hand up. Mm-hmm. Like every single thing. I was like, oh, I'm going to participate, you know. Um, uh, always you still do that, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I do it now. But in high school, I didn't do it because I had a class. I think it was English. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I know who the teacher is. And I said something and she was like, oh, that's dumb. Or like, why would you say that? I'm like. Bitch, you don't know what Shakespeare thinks. Like, what do you mean? It's like, you said you gave my interpretation. I gave my interpretation, right? And um, ever since then, it was one of those things. I was like, all right, I guess, like, I guess I shouldn't speak up because what if I'm wrong again? And like, you know, I didn't like that feeling. But when I was in college, uh, I took this class on. It was like video game theory or something, and it was really cool. It was all about video games, right? We got to learn a bunch. But um, the the teacher went up there, or the professor, I should say, and he said. He's like, you have an assignment where you ha- either have to write a five-page paper mm-hmm. or you have to, with the group, give a five-minute speech. <sighs> and I was just sitting there going, five pages? You know, and then somebody's like, is it single-spaced or double-spaced? And he's like, uh, let's just say single-spaced. And I was like, single-spaced? Five <laughs> pages? That's a lot of work. And yeah. you know, at this time, because I had such a bad experience with some public speaking, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck, I, I, I guess I'll write the paper, right? And then ultimately, I was like, nah, screw it. I'll just give a speech, right? Yeah. And like all of all of us were like computer science majors anyway. So it was just one of those things where like I looked around. And I was like, eh, like I'm somewhat outgoing. Like like yeah. maybe I can do an okay job at this, right? I think out of the class, maybe like two groups signed up to give a presentation. And like 80% of the class, it was all papers. Uh, but uh, we, had to, we had to talk about a video game. I love yeah. video games. So I got to talk about like motion capture and Call of Duty and um, how they got to implement it and all this stuff, like the technology behind it. And then some... F- fucking kid in the back was like isn't that from the wrong game and i was like oh. i was like no this is the article that i read here's my source right this is this is based on this is a picture directly from the article all this stuff right yeah. i was like you little fucking dick i was like i, I, bet, <laughs> I bet you don't have the balls to get up here and give a speech <laughs> let alone you're criticizing me yeah. but um plot plot twist i was the student in the back <laughs> no but uh, funnily enough because me and a shot um you know knew each other in college uh we were in the same class and we did have to give presentations in the same class i wasn't in that video game theory class no no no, no uh, different class yeah, um, but but there but there was like a our, our professor had us compete against other teams. Mm-hmm. So it was like my group in the back versus like a shots group in the middle because it was based on like where you sat. Okay, and um, I don't know. And like Matt we, didn't like to sit with me back then. <laughs> yeah, it's because you smelled, even though well, I can't smell. So I never had um, a fraternity brother who was in the same major as me, so I never got to sit with any bros during class. I got to do oh. next to a lot of sorority girls or women so nothing yeah, wrong with that. <laughs> i mean I just i just got to sit next to a shot that was, was okay <laughs> but uh it was something where like we both had to give a presentation that week and 
because you pick like who's going to lead the presentation. So everybody else just stands up there, says like one word and two people have to, like one person from each group leads it. And I was like, fuck it, a shot. Let's just go head to head. And if I remember correctly, I won. But I don't, I don't know if that's just me rewriting the narrative here. I, I think you're definitely rewriting the narrative. Well, I will say that group presentations probably might deserve its own episode because I've actually had the experience if I've had my own group member call me out during our group presentation for for uh, as you were as, doing it as we we're presenting. Yeah, he, he wow. called me out because the information I was or the statement I made uh, was not factual or something like that. And but I actually so if I was to choose a class that I really enjoy teaching, it's probably small group discussion, mainly because I really feel like public speaking is a great skill to have. But we so rarely give speeches, but we do a lot of group work or we work with other people in groups. And so for me, I really enjoy group presentation or group communication because you learn a lot about not only how groups work, but how you work with groups as well. And so that was one of the classes that I took. And uh, going back to the educational journey I talked about earlier, that uh, where I teach, I actually took classes in communication studies before I went to graduate school to see if this was something I was interested in. And the first class I took was small group discussion. And that, uh, I think I was the only one to get an A in the class because it was a tough class because working with other people's people is difficult. So you got to learn the skills and concepts and theories in order to make it work. And uh, she also wrote me my letter of recommendation or one of my letter of recommendations for graduate school. And uh, now that person is a colleague of mine because uh, when I teach and give in the classroom and give my educational journey, uh, I'm basically teaching in the same classrooms that I was once a student in as well. So that's sort of when the full educational journey comes full circle. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you went back to your education because there was a question I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you. When, when you were telling your story, but I didn't want to interject. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how did it feel uh, going from being an anteater to a matador? I actually, I'm not big on mascots. I'm, <laughs> I, I will say for me, every, every college or university I went to, I've sort of, you know, remember things that were important to me at the time. So when I think about my time at UC Irvine, like there are certain things that pop to mind, pop up to, uh, in my head. It's like when I did alternative spring break, when I was a RA for our fraternity house, and then everything else is just being, uh, you know, in a fraternity. And uh, the my story about how I got into the fraternity, I don't know if I told you this, but I, I basically got stalked by one of the guys. <laughs> and so, which is very common uh, when it comes to rushing or, or trying to uh, get people join to join, join the fraternity. So I was like, the first day was the Aldridge Park and they had all the, the booths up and clubs. And so I'm, I'm like, okay, I want to meet people. I'm going to join a club. This is the best way to, to meet people. And I ended up kind of doing the whole circle. I gave my number out. I, you know, gave my contact information, my name to express interest. And then I think the last booth I was, Oh, I passed the, the, am I allowed to say our fraternity name? Yeah. Okay. I just, 
didn't know if we you could just beep me out if it's not okay no 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 you can definitely <laughs> say it. we don't care I mean, we're, we're, we're gonna beep out most of what you said to be honest all right, all right. <laughs> it's just okay. like this is our friend matthew beep! <laughs> <laughs> he does beep. <laughs> yeah and so uh I passed the the Phi Gamma Delta, uh, better known as Fiji, uh, table. And I don't know if you knew this fraternity brother, but it was uh, Mario. He passed me a flyer and I kind of did this whole no thank you. And, and like, I just kept walking. And I didn't find out about the story until after I had crossed. But apparently after I said no thank you to the flyer, there were, uh, a group of them were like, we're going to rush this guy. <laughs> and, and so... So I ended up like, in, and I knew that they were telling me the truth because they knew the last booth I was at before I was like, okay, I'm going to make my way back to Arroyo Vista, which is where the student housing was, where I was living at the time in the humanities house. And so I think it was uh, Scotty. I was like making my way towards the exit to go back to where I was living. And Scotty like kind of does this beeline to like, Hey, how's it going? Extends his hand and shakes it and gets, does his, his spiel. And then I just sort of gave him my contact information and, and my name. And I, I didn't think much of it because I did it to a lot of booths that day. And we're like, well, okay, we'll see who follows through. And then later on that day, I'm, I'm, I just moved in earlier and I was unpacking still. And I get a phone call from Andy. Uh, and he, of course, says that uh, they're having this barbecue tonight. and that they would love me for me to come. And at that point, I didn't have any groceries and I was living in student housing that didn't require a meal card. So I ended up, um, just, I only had like, I think peanut butter on me at the time. So I didn't have much in terms of meal. So I was like, well, I'm not sure. They're like, well, we'll come pick you up. And I'm like, they're like, where do you live? And I'm like, oh, I live in the humanities house. And they're like, dude, you live next door to us. Just come on over. And so I was like, okay. And so I remember vividly walking up the path to the house because I had no intention of joining a fraternity. I had I was not your typical frat boy douchebag. And uh, it was nice to know not a lot of them were. A lot of them were like me. like And so walking up the path and then all of a sudden I am kind of immersed in this whole like getting to meet people, like they're introducing you to people, they're finding out stuff about you, then they invite you back. And so I found out after I had crossed that they actually targeted me <laughs> to be the fraternity after I had passed down the flyer. And I'm actually really grateful because going back to when we talked about um, the mascot thing, the matador and the anteater, for me, being an anteater is, you know, being a fraternity brother because a, a lot of the opportunities and the experiences that I had are really because of being in this fraternity. Uh, not necessarily fraternity related, but kind of influenced me. Like when I was an RA, I worked in housing and that was its own experience. And I actually made friends who were non-Greeks through doing that. And when we were doing all the training, it's funny, all the other RAs thought I was a, um, well, they called them HAs, but the RA is a resident advisor for one of the honors houses. They didn't believe I was the RA or HA for the Fiji house. And then um, that led me to then doing like alternative spring break, which was another opportunity because the spring break prior to that, I had gone to Mexico to build house a house with a bunch of fraternity brothers. And that kind of influenced me to spend my 
following spring break doing something similar like that. I don't think we had the opportunity to go back to Mexico and build another house was there, but I did do uh, this environmental retreat in San Bernardino National Forest, and it was just such a great opportunity. So I think it's I, I reflect back on a lot of my opportunities and, and events in my life, and I definitely am grateful for having turned that flyer down because then all of a sudden I became this target, and that led me to pledging uh, better understanding the what it means to be a fraternity brother as well as, of course, uh, other opportunities that arise uh, through it. When I told my family that I was rushing a fraternity, they all laughed. They they thought it was funny. And Same here. It was... Same here. I was, well, actually, my family didn't even know what a fraternity was. Oh. Um, so... <laughs> well, I, I had a couple of cousins who were in fraternities, but uh, I, I didn't display the typical traits or characteristics of a fraternity brother. But uh, then you you know, join one and you find there's a lot of other guys just like you. And it's only those one or two guys who fit the stereotype that ruin it for the rest of us. But right. Someone's got yeah. to throw the party. <laughs> I, I had a similar experience, funny enough. And I don't remember if I've talked about this experience on the podcast yet. Mm -hmm. But um, my first year in college, I said, I'm not joining a fraternity, mm -hmm. just dead out, did not even think about it, did not even rush. Um, and uh, it was because of the same thing, right? The uh, sort of uh, the stories you hear about how frat guys are and mm -hmm. frat guys are this and that yeah. and all this hazing and stuff. Um, so it wasn't something that I was uh, I was open to doing. Mm -hmm. But once I met some fraternity people, uh, you know, I became more open to the idea. Mm -hmm. And then uh, over the summer, I, uh, I got a job and I started working. And uh, then graduate brother uh, who had just graduated, Emilio, mm -hmm. Uh, was working the job as well and he found out that I was thinking and then he brought me around the house yeah. I met the guys and very similarly connected with them immediately and then the rest is history I can't, um, <laughs> I can't tell you how many lies I've told to other guys trying to rush them like I remember <laughs> like I mean nothing like and nothing like about the fraternity like lies about like things uh, I remember uh, I rushed this one guy and uh, gosh and I think I said that I, when we were talking about each other, I was like, oh, let's hang out. And he's like, yeah. He's like, you really into sushi? And I was like, absolutely. I didn't like sushi. <laughs> but, but I was all like, like, yeah, let's get sushi sometimes. And then the, oh, hey, we're getting sushi. Do you mind if I bring a couple of friends? Yeah, sure. Of course, they're fraternity brothers. And then, you know, he's like, can I bring a friend too? And I was like, yeah, bring a friend too. And then that's kind of, we ended up both. Uh, those guys ended up rushing and joining nice. and it was just kind of funny because it's like sometimes like i i tolerate sushi but it's not something i crave so it's kind of like right. a little white lie as a, as opposed to like a full-out lie but it's little things like that that you kind of i feel like for me besides the whole idea of replacing yourself uh, for me it was like i had a great experience and if someone else was interested in in these sort of experiences i wanted to to kind of share my experience with them and see if they were interested in, in being a part of something like that. So. Oh, definitely. I mean, if the fraternity, if I hadn't joined the fraternity, obviously yeah. Matt hadn't joined the fraternity, this podcast would have never happened. Exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm very thankful of the fraternity yeah. too. And a, a lot of other things, you know, mm -hmm. I was um, the first job I got, I, I later sp spoke to my boss uh, about it because during my interview, I mentioned that uh, I was president of the fraternity mm -hmm. And he said that that was one of the things that helped me get the job because, you know, if you can yeah. 
uh, manage uh, 50 uh, <laughs> drunk college guys, <laughs> you can mm. definitely, you know, manage working at mm. a, uh, in a professional setting. It, his words, not mine. So I've, No, I've given that same exact pitch because I was, you know, president before a shot. And they're like, you know, when you have no experience, like, well, what do you do? I was like, well, I was president for turn. Like, oh, cool. How's that? And I was like, well, you know, you explain it. And you're like, you know, 50 people, 60 people that can just tell you no. Right. Like you have no real control over them. I can't make them do anything mm-hmm. in the professional world. If you don't do what your boss says, you're going to get pipped or you're going to get yeah. fired. Right. Like there's a process involved. There's HR. There's, you know, shit to help out the company. But in this situation, none of that. So, I, yeah, uh, it's all just, you know, serendipitous how it all just flows together. And like every moment in your past led you to this exact moment right now. Absolutely. And uh, it goes into this whole idea of like your life as this journey or this hero's journey. And you really don't quite realize the journey you're on until you look back at the moments in your life because, you know, you can't really see where the future will take you, but you can see where it's led you so far. Yeah, there's a really good uh, Steve Jobs uh, quote Mm -hmm. from a commencement speech he gave uh, where he says, um, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. There you Um, go. I think it's very relevant. Yeah, that was a big topic that I had to learn in um, in therapy was mm-hmm. my therapist is like, look how far you've come, what you've accomplished in life. Because for me, I'm always, you know, nose down, grinding, looking forward to the next peak. Mm-hmm. And she's like, but if you stop and you take a moment to look, you have this beautiful view of like the life that you've crafted so far. Right. You went to university. You, you mm-hmm. got a good job. You did all these things that you never thought you would do when you were younger for whatever reason. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you just didn't know where you're, you're going to find your place in the world. And now that you're on that kind of like rat race in the corporate life, she's like, you have to stop and say, like, look at what you've accomplished. Right. And even, you know, reflecting upon like our first session with her. And then like when she basically I mean, she didn't kick me to the curb, but, you know, she was kind of like, there's not much we can do here, you know. So then like now I'm I'm back seeing her again after after COVID and everything just Mm -hmm. to kind of recalibrate and realign you know, mm. moving forward and it's just great but i'm like yeah i remember that time three years ago you said this like and i'm like i like you know show up my notes on my phone and i was like i talked about this like i wrote a fucking post like a beer <laughs> diary post about like it was literally like stop and look at the journey you know like see how far you've come um okay so it, it definitely um, so yeah. i wasn't gonna share this but i have this bulletin board uh that essentially is kind of like a vision board but um I have this printout of just sort of like strategies when you feel overwhelmed or anxious and things like that. And I believe that I got this from uh, my therapist and I folded it up and I pinned it on my vision board and I wrote in case of emergency. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. I love that. So yeah, because you never know when you're going to get triggered or something's going to fall, happen again or uh, something you're not in control of. So it's always kind of nice to have like those strategies in place, much like, you know, when it comes to speaking in front of an audience, those strategies that you could rely on to help reevaluate and help you focus more on the being present and in the moment. So definitely agree. Definitely. Very cool. Uh, And I know we went on a very long tangent, but I think we're finally curbing back onto uh, the road we were on. (laughs) What were some other strategies for public speaking? I honestly, (laughs) at this point, the only thing that I would probably share, it's, it's more along the lines of just things like noting. Like when you 
have thoughts or feelings that run through your head, like thoughts like, oh, I'm not a very good public speaker. Or, oh, they're all staring at me. Or you feel anxious or you feel um, like, I don't know, afraid. Uh, you just got to note it. So like, oh, that's thinking. Oh, that's um, that's a feeling. Was it pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? And of course, I, I'm saying the words of uh, Andy Putting. Comb, I believe is his name, uh, the co-founder founder of Headspace, the meditation app. And that that's something that I do when I lecture now, like when I say something and everyone just stares at me and I'm like, okay. And that thought comes to my head. They don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not a very good teacher. You know, that, that sort of chatter in, in your head. And then you just have to be like, oh, that's just thinking. And then, or, or oh, that's just a feeling. And then you just got to reevaluate. Okay, so why is it that everyone's staring at me? Probably because they don't understand what I just said. So let me ask a question or let me rephrase what I have to say. Or maybe I should just move on to something else and just say, if you have any other questions, uh, feel free to ask me or things like that. Uh, in terms of other strategies, uh, know you're going to make mistakes. Even with this podcast, I uh, try to come off as you know, professional as I could, but there is going to be a point where you will make a mistake. And sometimes I correct myself, like briefly note, like if I choose a, a word that I didn't want or I didn't feel best represents. So in those types of cases, I will either make a brief correction or in some cases, like the mistake isn't even that noticeable and you should just continue on and, and know that mistakes are learning opportunities. And, uh, Breathing is another important thing. I feel like you got to control your breathing uh, for something that we do our entire life. I feel like a lot of us are really bad at it. It's like listening. We, we mainly listen, like 80% of what we do is listening, but a lot of us are really poor listeners and it's, it's, a, it's a skill, like public speaking. You have to work on it. And even myself, I, I try to work on it and I... Um, I found that the hardest thing about video sharing or, or Zoom is is being attentive and listening because I thought I had um, I kept cutting people off and then apparently there I, I was told or I came across um, an article that said that there's this like pause uh, for the transfer audio and video and I wasn't aware of that about that so I felt like I kept cutting people off in the conversation. Uh, but at the same time, also, if you, you know, are, are attentive and strive to be an active listener and really work on limiting the distractions, it, it's something that you could improve upon. And I know that's something I'm really striving for because a lot of what I do when I'm get, um, listening is listening to these speeches. So to be attentive, I really have to strive to be an active listener because I'm uh, the thing about when I'm listening to these speeches is I'm not just listening, but I'm also taking notes and I'm grading. So I'm having to multitask, which I don't like to multitask. I I'm a monotasker and I'm happy with that. I mean, there's certain things like if it's a passive activity and I want to do something a little more active, um, then I'll do that. But otherwise it's, it's not, uh, not something. Yeah, I mean, we're as humans historically mm -hmm. bad at multitasking. Oh, it's yeah. just yep. something that we've kind of tricked everybody to thinking that that's how you be more productive when really like no. you answering six different messages while trying to figure out an email and doing this just causes a ton of chaos in our mind oh, yeah. and really just hits you with anxiety. So for me, 
like that happened to me at work earlier where I was just like, holy sh like what, what the hell do I do? You know? And then I just was like, all right, stop everything. Like take a break, put on some music, relax a little bit. And then write out a to-do list of like, what's most important right now. Go do that thing, go to the next thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of reframing it and refocusing. And um, yeah, I mean, all these, all these tips that you gave have been just so amazing because for me, it's, um, it's selfish because we get to pick your brain, but I also have to start facilitating these group meetings at work where mm-hmm. we're doing training sessions for some of our new clients. Mm-hmm. And I have to be, you know, the person on camera who's got, you know, 10, 15 people there and they're just all staring at me or maybe not yeah. if they choose to, you know, turn their camera off. So it's really helpful to have that as a framework to fall back on mm-hmm. and remembering things like you said, to like be present, you know, to yeah. breathe, to, um, to note those thoughts, right? Why is everybody looking at me funny or whatever? Because sometimes, especially over Zoom, we had a little uh, Zoom episode previously, or uh, what is it like tele teleconferencing, teleworking, teleworking, whatever it was. And um, it, it's just one of those things where it's weird because I'll say jokes a lot. That's how mm-hmm. I try to relate to people. Yeah. And sometimes I'll crack a joke on Zoom, and you don't hear anybody laughing because mm-hmm. they're muted. And maybe <laughs> sometimes you see somebody laughing and you go, "Yes, I got them." Yeah. But most of the time, you're just like fuck did, did i just bomb like yeah. that joke always works you know like for or it's instance, just not uh, funny matt no no it was, it was a great joke you know it was about how i make money off of uh, fears and my brother makes money off of fears <laughs> <laughs> was your delivery better than mine because i really feel like that's really important when it comes to jokes well i delivered right now i totally bombed it yeah. <laughs> you know but... well when i was when i told my brother about this uh podcast I was going on and I was going to talk about my best man speech and I was going to say oh you know open talk about that joke and he's like I'm actually a crematory operator now <laughs> so he's moved you have to, up the the, you have to update the joke yeah so he burns bodies for a living so wow yeah uh, that's what an uh, anthropology degree will get you in life <laughs> so that's very cool. good he, that's he good to know bodies and you burn speeches that people submit for you exactly huh? <laughs> exactly you, you print them out you're like this is just fuck you, you do the simon cowell this is rubbish and just <laughs> light it on fire in front of them <laughs> the burn brothers that's who we are there you go i mean that that'd be one way to scar somebody from ever saying a word again in a public space <laughs> just literally take their speech off off the podium and just light it on fire yeah <laughs> actually that might be a good strategy to um uh, going back to one of the strategies yeah. that it's uh, uh, ephemeral uh they give the speech and then uh you have them light the speech on fire oh, okay okay it's, uh, it's ephemeral. yeah why right? we just wipe their mind like in men in black and we'll never have to even think about it <laughs> No, but Matt, like you were saying, I, I think a lot of these were very valuable, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the one that uh, stands out to me the most mm-hmm. is the fact that it's it's ephemeral. Yeah. So I feel like in in a lot of cases, that's what gives people a lot of that post-performance mm-hmm. anxiety is the fact that people are going to remember uh, that I messed up. Yeah. They're going to remember the speech. They're going to remember this and that. But what most people don't realize, as well as myself, yeah. is that um, no one's going to remember that no. they're not they don't care i don't want to say they don't care but in most cases they have other things to worry about mm-hmm. than a speech that you gave uh you know in front of a class or yeah. your best man speech or whatever it is um you know in the moment yes they were listening mm-hmm. but as soon as it was over they moved on Absolutely. unless you're known as the speech guy in the family <laughs> well is, isn't that the um isn't there like i believe it's a maya angelou quote where she Dude, says i was just um, gonna talk about that thank you go you go Honestly, for it please oh no 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 I, I, you introduce no me. you're the guest guest first okay, that's, well, that's how we do it here so i thought this uh so this is maya Angel- angelou quote about how and of course i'm gonna have to uh summarize or paraphrase it it's 
people don't remember what you taught them or what you told them. They remember how you made them feel. Yep. And there and it it's is. So true. Round of applause, baby. Thank you. I mean, it's not like in quotes on like Instagram or anything like that with Maya Angelou <laughs> underneath it. But but essentially sure cited in your bibliography. All right. I'm watching you. No plagiarism. Here. Points. <laughs> it would have been funny if you're like, yeah, you know, people only <laughs> Yeah. People only remember he how stole you it off as his own. Not not what you told them. It's like I'm pretty sure I've heard that before. Where did I he's like he, he's like, Yeah, this is just one of those little white lies. Yeah, like, like, this, this is what I tell my students all the time time all right it's like how, how did i feel <laughs> my my hope for you is that moving forward um you're like the gordon ramsay of of speech critique oh wow that's that's a <laughs> that's a big uh big shoes to feel uh, i mean honestly I, I love public speaking but it's it's not my favorite I, I i usually only try to teach one class each semester or some, some usually two though but at the same time also it's i feel like i enjoy it but it's the more you do it, the less enthusiastic I become and uh, with it, just because I feel like sometimes students aren't as creative with the, the topics as I would like. And like, I'll give you an example when, um, when we went fully online and I was having students give the same or the persuasive speech prompt, which was a local issue. I kept getting speech after speech about uh, mental health, about COVID and about, uh, about college tuition. And then it really started, started to make me very depressed after a while, just because it was a lot of heavy topics and, and people were sharing personal stories or stories about other people. Um, but I do still f- love the performative aspect of it. Uh, public speaking is a performance. And uh, so I love when a student gives a really great speech and I'm there to witness it. Um, but right now I feel like I'm kind of getting a little bit drained with public speaking because I'm having to watch a lot of videos and it's not the same mm-hmm. as it is in the classroom. So that's the hard part about teaching online. It's the same thing as if um, like listening or watching a comedy routine mm-hmm. on Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. And then actually going to the performance live, there's an energy in the crowd that you don't Absolutely. get, you know, Absolutely. while you're on your couch watching it. Um, you know, I, one, I completely one, agree. Yeah. One thing I wanted to point out, too, is I really love the the framework of like the pre-preparation, the preparation, the pre-performance, mm-hmm. the performance and the post-performance, because that to me is so relatable for anxiety to mm-hmm. every other aspect. Because like for me, you know, years ago, I was like, I don't want to go on a plane. I haven't been on a plane in years. Like, mm-hmm. what if I panic on the plane and I have to like puke? Yeah. Well, there's only one bathroom and everybody's going to fucking hear it because I'm loud. <laughs> You know, um, or what if I need help or what if I can't get help? And like, what mm-hmm. if I'm trapped? And what if I'm like the crazy guy that's like, let me off the fucking plane, you know, and I, <laughs> and I grab the, I try to grab the, um, you know, the door. Yeah. And this is funny because I used to work in um, the, the aerospace industry. <laughs> so I knew a lot about planes and I wasn't <laughs> worried about the plane crashing or anything. I was just worried, like, what if I freak out and can't get help? But um, for me, it's like planning a trip, right? Oh. The second somebody says like, hey, let's go plan this trip. I'm like, oh, my God, the, the pre-preparation kicks in like, mm-hmm fuck when is this you know oh, it's six months down the road i have yeah. to think about this shit for six months and then eventually you know you work your way through the stages and you're like during the performance you're like ah whatever like the, the plane ride was a little bumpy not a yeah. big deal right but uh it's just so relatable because no matter what type of anxiety mm. you're going through at home you can map out to where you're feeling what in it and then use that as kind of a framework to say like 
you know, why am I feeling this way now? Yeah. Right. What do I feel like after? Because we talked about um, going on roller coasters and how that's very similar to anxiety a lot of times, right? Mm-hmm. You have such a big buildup while you're waiting in line. And something that got me to go on roller coasters, because I'm not a big roller coaster guy, mm-hmm. was I had a front of the line pass. And it was like, literally, you walk up the the back of the line and mm-hmm. just get on it, right? So at that point, it was like, I had no hesitation. It was just like me and, you know, another friend, hey, we're going to go on this ride. Okay, cool. I'm not even thinking about the ride or how scary it is or whatever, right? How it's going to make me feel. I'm just like, oh, cool. We're on it. Next thing you know, like we're there. Three, two, one, takeoff. Yep. You know, I couldn't even think about it. But before when I tried to go on that ride years ago in high school, I got so panicked because it was an hour wait to get on it. Oh. So I'm just like waiting in line, waiting in line, waiting in line. Oh my God. Oh my God. And you hear people screaming and whatever. And then, you know, you look at somebody, oh my God, do, do they have a good experience, a bad experience? What's going mm-hmm. on? And then eventually I'm just like, fuck it. I don't want to wait an hour for this. Yeah. You know, I have to pee. Let's just get out of line and leave or I have to take a shit or something. Right. Especially with um, stress and anxiety, like a shot has talked about, like if you have a lot of anxiety, sometimes it causes your stomach to be upset and you're like, well, oh. yeah, I, I got to go poop. Sorry. I can't wait in the scary <laughs> line. Yeah, I, I guess this is this went way longer than I thought it would and way off topic. <laughs> but it, it's great. Thank you for, for having me on. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, we can uh, definitely talk about whenever you're free having mm-hmm. you on again, if, if you're up for it. I'd love to. Absolutely. Because I feel like in my mind, you know, I was already crafting how this was going to go, even though I'd never been on a podcast. And I, in the beginning, I don't know if you noticed, I was trying to like bridge to the next topic. And I was like, just let it flow, man. Just just enjoy it for what it is. <laughs> and, then, and then eventually, this is when we ended up on topics such as poop. No, uh, we used to do the same thing, Matthew. Yeah. So when we first started, we would have an outline of our episode, yeah. and we would go from topic to topic. And uh, again, like you said, I yeah. think it just comes with doing uh doing it enough times where you just you find what works and what you know there are definitely podcasts out there that still do that and are very much on topic and yeah that's their style and i feel like we have this uh uh what 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 did you call it what was that word yeah the Uh, e-word uh the, the the type of speech where you give oh, it with uh, an outline. extemporaneous yes extemporaneous uh type of <laughs> podcast yeah. where time is fast uh, yeah where it, we'll yeah. uh we'll just talk and improvise and we'll have like some notes about yeah. topics that we want to touch upon but we'll we'll more or less let it flow naturally okay because yeah this this went from extemporaneous to impromptu which is the other method of <laughs> delivery <laughs> so you got memory you got manuscript you got impromptu and you got extemporaneous i feel like had we read something verbatim on this podcast, we probably would have covered all four. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe the quotes uh, we kind of did. The, the Steve Jobs quote I gave was a direct quote. So oh, there, you, there go. you go. But you're going to be reading <laughs> off of it. But yeah, I guess that was memory technically. Yeah. You're right. You're it's true. Right. I mean, what do you mean? Stoicism is finding meaning in struggles, the path to a purposeful life filled with the meaning. <laughs> there he goes. He just read that. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, you, now, um, obviously in the future, um, if we decide to talk more about stoicism, mm-hmm. that would be great for everybody. Cause we, we touch on that a lot. Great. Um, f- fraternity experience. That's something we haven't really touched on too much. Okay. Uh, we've touched a lot in like men's groups, women's groups, like social groups type of thing, but specifically fraternities. And maybe that'll help make people have a better perception of it overall. Right. Instead of just all of us being the, the frat boy douchebags that we, that we once mm-hmm. were, you know, but now we're much older and mature. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I opened up my shell too. And, you know, now that a shot poked fun at me in the beginning and, you know, me, me and Matthew will go for 
for six days talking like this. Oh, Sean's just like, <laughs> he's, he's sleeping in the background. He's like, oh, 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 I took a nap. All right. You guys yeah. are still going? Yeah. Yeah. We thought you were engaged. <laughs> yeah. No worries. And, and I know like one of the things I was actually excited to talk about, but I totally, it, it's a whole episode onto itself. This uh, year of fear that I talked to you all about. Um, because for me, a lot of the anxiety and stress and depression that I've experienced in my life, I feel like uh, this year I've really, even, um, I mean, really several years, but within this last year, when I kind of made it my year of fear, I feel like this past year I've made the biggest strides um, because once you kind of figure out what it is that you're fearful of and how to overcome it, it sort of, it feels like a whole new you afterwards. And so, I, and I mean, it's not easy. And so there's plenty of strategies and things that I'm doing and still trying to learn and do. So I definitely- I think that's a really good way to end it mm-hmm. and leave, uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave that year of fear as a preview okay. for the next time that you come on. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon that subject uh, for next time. But we really appreciate you doing this. And I, yeah. I, I know it took... Uh, a lot of time and um, you know we had to go through some uh, technical uh, difficulties throughout it but uh, we appreciate you coming on we appreciate the inside and you opening up yeah um, and uh, you know we we hope you enjoyed the the experience and got something out of it as well I did now and I appreciate it and and I'd like if, if possible I'd love to, to come back and and share more because I definitely and like I mentioned earlier I think this is great what you're doing and I feel like if I could help contribute uh, contribute and continue the conversation uh, I'm all the more for it so absolutely oh thank you definitely possible and uh, we, we would definitely love to have you we thank accept you. you can replace a shot starting next week thank you everyone uh, stay safe stay healthy uh, we'll talk to you guys a uh, couple days. Bye.